All right. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. You're welcome. And uh, and I, I, and to those of you who have been uh, because because you have manners built into your DNA. Whenever I've told you Happy Mother's Day and you've said you've returned to me, Happy Mother's Day to you too. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I do want to before we get started. I always feel like I have to say something along these lines. I, I, first of all. This is a what a what a beautiful tradition that we have in our culture of just stopping and pausing and and recognizing that there are there are strong powerful women in our lives that have have left such a deep impactful mark and we can take some time and celebrate their contributions to us their contributions to our children and um, and, and really just all the things that these women have done in our lives and so we are grateful for that but I also want to acknowledge that for some uh, Mother's Day is it's a day where there's some pain. That's, that comes along with it. For, for some, for some people, Mother's Day represents some hopes that they had had for their family. That at one point or another, they realized it, it's not going to happen that way. And so, if, uh, Mother's Day, they're, they're watching other people celebrate Mother's Day, and there's there's a sense there's a, there's an ache to that. And so, um, I recognize that for some of us, that's that's our story. And for for others of us, Mother's Day is a day when we remember someone that we've lost. And uh, it's a day that we, we are reminded to grieve all over again. And so for some of us, Mother's Day is a day that we're reminded of the mother that we didn't have. And so there's, there's, a, there's a pain, there, there's, an, there's, there's an absence that we feel every, every time we see a lot of people celebrating Mother's Day. And so uh, Mother's Day, and so for some of us, there's probably a whole tangled web of all of those things. And so uh, for those of us who are here and we're celebrating and we're, um, we're, we're excited and we're, we're, we're acknowledging the greatness of uh, the women and the mother figures in our lives. We, we celebrate that with you. And for those of us who uh, there's, there's a bit of pain and there's a bit of an ache, we, we grieve that with you as well. And so uh, because we believe that we, we serve a God who meets us where we are. And so for some of us, we're in a lot of different places. And, that's, um, and so we, we, we meet one another in those places as well. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into what we actually came to talk about. God, we, we thank you for Mother's Day. We thank you for all the things that it represents. We thank you for uh, the moms in this room, for the, for the women who have poured themselves out for, for someone else, for, 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 for the people, for the women in our lives who have sacrificed something so that there might be new life. And uh, as, we, as we enter into... Uh, this continual conversation that we're having about revelation, we pray that our eyes would be open, that we would see something that perhaps we had never seen before, and that we would be uh, moved to to some sort of response, that we would that we would live in some sort of new way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're continuing, or I'm sorry, chapter 3. Wow. We are through the second chapter of Revelation. We're six parts into this, and we're already... Uh, we're moving all the way into the third chapter. So um, we're, we're going kind of slow, I realize, and things will pick up once we get through these seven letters. And if you've been with us before, some of this is going to be a little bit of a repeat, but I do want to just sort of catch everybody up. The book of Revelation, essentially, is a piece of mail that was sent to seven different churches 2,000 years ago. And so when we're reading this book, one of the things that we have to always remember is that we're reading somebody else's mail from a long time ago in ancient Turkey, or Asia Minor, as it was called. 
And so, um, and so what we're doing as we look at this, this book is we're asking lots of different questions about symbolism and imagery and what like the implications on today. But there's always this recurring question of, yeah, but what did it mean to the people who, who received it then? Why did they need this? And why was this perceived to be good news to the people who did receive it? And so we're spending a lot of time actually looking at the seven different cities or the churches within the seven different cities that received this letter. And we're asking, okay, what was going on in this city? And why did this city need this message at this particular time in history. So today we're looking at a city called Sardis. And Sardis uh, was one of the major cities in the western part of Asia Minor, or again, Turkey. And so Sardis is a really interesting city. I think all these cities are very interesting for their own kinds of reasons. But Sardis, in, in terms of just like city layout, has a really interesting story. So you have the, the city of Sardis, be, Sardis began as literally as a city on a hill. It was built as a hilltop community and so this is a this is a walled garrison. This is what I'm drawing for you. I have to explain it because it's terrible. And so this is uh, so the, the whole city began as it at, built on a 1,500 foot tall hilltop. And so when the city was built, it was essentially built in this way to um, to, to sort of be a, a like a hilltop kind of city. Now as the city got bigger and as it expanded, there it moved into part of the city began to expand into the lower part of the valley. And so you had like smaller communities and homes and some religious temples in this part of, of the city. And so it became like a split level city in a real kind of way. So you have up here on the hilltop, you still have like the people who are in power. You have like royalty and the wealthier people and the people who have any sort of like political influence. But then down here, you have all of the middle to lower class sorts of people. So it really like in a very literal way, there was an upper class and a lower class. There were there were people who lived on the hilltop behind the walled garrison. And then there were people who lived down in the valley, sort of in the wide open uh, like field part of, of the area. And so this is how the city of Sardis was laid out. Economically, Sardis was a pretty prosperous place. It had it was a technologically advanced city. It for one thing, they had developed a particular method for spinning wool that was very advantageous and that became sort of an innovative thing that they developed at the time. They also developed uh, the ability to mint coins. And so if you had like a particularly kind of fine spun wool in this area or coins that had been minted Chances are those, that technology had been developed in Sardis. So this is a, like a forward-thinking, technologically advanced city. It was also a very wealthy city, not just because of the technological advancements, but because several hundred years earlier, there was a king who ruled Sardis by the name of Croesus, and, and while he was in charge, they discovered gold in the city. And this is a lot of gold. In fact, they discovered so much gold that Croesus, who, again, was the king at the time, became the wealthiest man in the world during his lifetime just based on the amount of gold that they discovered in the city. Now, when you have a lot of gold, one of the things that you can do is you can buy lots of weapons and lots of soldiers. And so Sardis, because of its advantageous place on the hilltop and because of its walled garrison and because of its infinite resources in, in its ability to buy the ability to defend itself, Sardis was seen as an unconquerable city. And so, in fact, lots of different armies had tried to conquer Sardis and could not do it because of its place on the hill. Now, I mean, you could conquer, like, the lower area, but that would get you nothing because all the power and the wealth and, and the, like, the, the influential citizens all lived up here. And so, if you can't get up to the top of the hill and conquer the city, then you cannot conquer the city. So, Sardis was seen as an unconquerable territory. So, about 500 years before the book of Revelation was written, there was a Persian king named Cyrus the Great. 
Cyrus the Great, in spite of the fact that Sardis was perceived to be an unconquerable city, Cyrus the Great conquered Sardis. And so here's how he did it. This is crazy. I can't, I, this sounds like a made up, like Monty Python type story. This, this is really, uh, according to like historical like works, this is how, how it happened. I kind of can't believe it. But basically how it happened was Cyrus the Great had been trying over and over and over again to conquer Sardis. In fact, by the way, Sardis uh, also was the capital of this particular region in Western Turkey. And so if you wanted to conquer this area, you needed Sardis. And so Cyrus the Great was trying to take over this part of the world, but he could not conquer Sardis. And so... And they, they surrounded the city, and they tried over and over and over again, and they kind of, like, laid siege to it, like, surrounding it, just, like, waiting for an opportunity to, to take over, and they couldn't do it. And just before Cyrus was about to, like, call it in and say, this is, we can't do this, and, and, and pull back his troops, here's what happened. According to legend, here's what happened. There was a soldier sitting at the top of the garrison inside the city, and he dropped his helmet. And so he dropped his helmet down the hill, and it rolled all the way down the hill. And if you're a soldier and you drop your helmet, you've got to go get your helmet. And so this soldier leaves his post and climbs down the hill all the way down, gets his helmet, and goes all the way back up to the top of the city. And it turns out one of Cyrus's men was watching the whole thing. And so he watched this guy because the, the idea was, how do you get to the top of, how, how do you get to a place where you can enter the city from the bottom of the hill? And so they just watched this one soldier go to get his helmet, and then he climbs back up. Again, like a Monty Python sketch. And so he like goes back up, and like the, the, one of Cyrus's men saw the whole thing, and he, and he went back to Cyrus, and he said, look, there's a really narrow passageway around the back of the hill, and it's very, very narrow, and it's very, very steep, but that's how their soldiers get up there. And we can take that. We can take it. And so Cyrus and his army conquered the unconquerable city. So that was about 500 years before the book of Revelation was written. By the way, if you ever end up on Jeopardy, I hope you'll remember the work we did here today. So... Um, so you also, uh, so about, about 300 years later, there was another situation where someone, another army was trying to conquer the city of Sardis. And again, totally unconquerable, could not figure out how to, how to do it. And so they, once again, just sit back and watch. How do, we, how do we conquer the city? So one of the things that they would do in the city is if they had an enemy combatant or like, a, like livestock that they had to get rid of who had died, what they would do, they wouldn't bury it in the city. They would toss the body, they would toss the carcass over the city wall. And so there were certain parts of the city, like surrounding the city on, on, at the top of the hill, where you would see vultures flying and picking at the dead carcasses. And so at some point, one of these enemy army soldiers witnessed, like, there were, there were buzzers or vultures that were, uh, that were just perched at the top of one place on the wall. And so the soldier begins to watch and notices, like, these vultures are sitting there for hours at a time and they're not moving. Why? Because if you have soldiers up at the top of the wall and they're patrolling, shouldn't the vultures be, like, as the soldier passes by, the the vultures are going to fly off. These vultures are sitting there for a long, long time, which means what? Nobody's patrolling that part of the wall. So what they decided was, okay, let's just take the wall from that side. Nobody will see us, and and we'll take the city. And so for the second time in history, this unconquerable city got conquered, essentially because everybody got caught sleeping on the job. Because, or because someone's helmet rolled down the hill. And so you have an unconquerable city who, when they let their guard down and they stop paying attention, they are taken by a foreign hostile power. And so that's what, that is the story of the city. So now let's take a look at this letter to the people in, uh, in the city of Sardis, to this church in Revelation, and we'll see if maybe it doesn't make any sense to us. So in Revelation chapter 3, it says this. It says, To the angel or to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write... These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up 
strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not, and here's that language again, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. What kind of language is this? Is he pulling this out of nowhere or is he calling up on this ancient story that everybody who lives in the city knows because it's kind of an embarrassing story. Like our unconquerable city was conquered because we got caught sleeping on the job. And so you have this writer writing to the church and what does he say? What kind of language does he use? He says, wake up. You are sleeping on the job. And so he calls on, the, on, on their own history and their own story to draw something out of them. And so I think one of, the, one of the most profound, powerful things about the scriptures is that they exist as this constant reminder to not be complacent and asleep in our own lives. I think one of the, one of the beautiful things about the scriptures is it's, there's this constant reminder of don't forget that you're alive. Don't forget that you are living a life, and if you sleep through it, you're going to miss something beautiful and profound. So, in fact, um, look at there's this uh, there's this other book called Ecclesiastes that we did a series on actually about a year and a half ago or so. Um, really fascinating, profound, powerful book. And if you're interested in that series, you can still find it on our podcast feed. But um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter three, you have this writer who says this. He says in verse eighteen, he says, "I also said to myself, as for humans." God tests them so that they might see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human, human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. And we talked before about how this word meaningless here in Hebrew is not, it doesn't mean like without value. Literally, it's the word havel. And havel literally means vapor. And so it's not like it has no value. What meaningless is, is it has, it has form. And then before you know it, it no longer has form. It's the idea of it's here. And before you're able to even understand that it's here, it's gone. And so he, he basically says like all of life is made up of havel. All of life is made up of you have these moments and you have no idea how fast they will go by. All of life is made up of things that before you know it, they won't be there anymore. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes is reminding us, you're alive now. And it's this very brief, very beautiful, very valuable thing. In fact, the briefness of it is the thing that gives it its value, is, the, is what I would argue. And so you have, throughout the scriptures, you have this reminder, you're alive. And the fact that you're alive is actually a pretty beautiful, rare thing. Because in terms of, like, compared to all the other people in history, you're alive and they're not. And so, like, the fact that you're alive now needs to mean something. And the fact that you're alive now has significant value. And so we have this writer in Revelation telling this group of people, wake up. In fact, what, what does he say? He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Which, what a weird thing to say. Like, who has a reputation? Who doesn't have a reputation for being alive? Like, he's like, word on the street is you're alive. Well, yeah, isn't that like everybody? And so, but, he, but I, I love what he does with that because it's like everybody sees, like, it looks to me like you're alive because you're, you're living your life. You're going to work. You're doing all the things that people do. But it turns out you're sleepwalking through the whole thing. You look alive, but you're dead. There's something that's dead that should be alive. Have you ever found yourself driving to work and you, you pull into the parking lot and you're like, how did I get here? Do you know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever like found yourself and you like live like significant portions of your day and you take a moment and you're like, where did, like, how did I get here? And you know, cognitively, like, you understand like you were driving your car and that's how you got here. But there's like, you sort of go into like this weird trance and you're there, but you're not really there. How many of us, like we space out and like there are certain chunks of our life that were there, but we're not really there. And, and so we have this constant reminder within the scriptures of 
Is your, is your whole life just being lived in these, like, sort of, like, you seem alive, but what if, what if you're not? Like, what if you're just sort of, like, pretending? What if the whole thing is just, like, you're, you're on autopilot all the time, and it's just, you're just doing the things that you always do, and it means nothing, and the next thing you know, you, you, like, years have gone by, and what do we constantly say? Like, where did the time go? You were there for all of it, and so, and yet we missed so much of it. How many of us, like, it's Mother's Day, and how many of us are like, didn't we just have Mother's Day? You know what I mean? Like, how many of us, like, and the older we get, the faster it goes. Because a lot of times we're, we're just doing, and a lot of times it just has to do with, like, the older we get, we perceive time differently. But also, it's like, I wonder if we just get into these routines, and, like, the, the, the longer we go, and the more, like, into our routines and rhythms that we get, the less aware of, like, life we become. And I love that one of the things the scriptures call us into over and over again is never, ever forget how beautiful and short and profound this moment is. Your life is a gift and the awareness of the temporariness of it. Like, I think one of the things about Ecclesiastes that makes it so powerful is it constantly is saying, like, you are going to die. You have only so much time, which means the time that you have matters. What you do with your energy and your resources and your mental power, all of it matters. And if we waste it, then we don't get it back. And so this writer says to this group of people in Revelation, you seem alive, but you're dead. And then he says, wake up. And because you're in your city, there are stories about what does it look like when someone needs to be awake, but they're not. What does it look like when someone like sleepwalks through their own life? Well, it looks like something kind of hijacks the whole thing. And so... Um, in fact, let's, let's, let's just go on. I, uh, I, could, I, could, I could just keep talking about this. But that's, so essentially, the, the message to this, to this group of people is, wake up. Don't be complacent. Don't, don't let yourself sleep through your own life. It's way too valuable. It's way too beautiful to do that. And then in verse 4 um, of Revelation 3, he says this. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, which is weird. Like, what? <laughs> Only a few of us? So, um, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Now white dressed in white, like the, the image of like the white robe in Roman culture is like a sign of victory, like military triumph. It's how you declare like you have won, you have, you've accomplished something, but he starts out with, um, you, some of you have not soiled your clothes again, which raises so many questions. Like what is he, is he being metaphorical? Is he, is there some sort of literal thing to this? Here's what's going on in this. This is actually very fascinating. So in Sardis, one of the major religions of the city of Sardis was the worship of a goddess named Artemis. Artemis was the mother goddess in that particular mythology. In fact, I mean, Sardis is not the biggest Artemis worship center in the world. It was actually about the third or the fourth. The city of Ephesus is actually the biggest place where people would, would worship Artemis. But if you were to Google image search um, just city, ancient city of Sardis, you'll, in, you'll find lots of photos of like a wide open like field with some ruins. And you have like these two very, very tall pillars that you will see in the picture of the ruins. What those two pillars are is are what remains of what was called the Temple of Artemis in Sardis. Now, here's how, so Sardis was a massive place of worship of, the, of Artemis. Artemis was the mother goddess. And um, so which means she was the goddess of, not unlike a lot of the gods and goddesses that we've seen in the series so far, uh, the goddess of fertility. So things like procreation, things like um, agricultural success. And so this is what you would see. This is what people would, would pray for when they would pray to Artemis. Now, because Artemis was the mother goddess, one of the ways, if you wanted to devote your whole life to the service of Artemis and you were a man, what you would have to do is you would have to forfeit your masculinity in order to serve Artemis, which means you would 
Sorry, everybody. This is, um, is going to get a little graphic, and I apologize, but you would, um, you would participate in what was known as a removal ceremony. So they would give you a new robe to wear, and you would remove the part of you that is um, most masculine. So uh, you, would, you would remove the, you know, the man bits. And so you would take that, and you would participate in this, this particular service, or this particular um, Ritual, and then you would line up with all the other men who had also participated in that, and there would be an altar in the temple of Artemis that you would go into, and you would, one by one, you would place your manhood on the altar. And so, like, so you would have, at the end of this ceremony, you would have, first of all, you would have a big altar filled with things you don't necessarily want to ever touch. And then you would also have lots of people who had robes that had been covered in blood. And so, like, brand new robes that had been covered in blood. And so you have lots of people participating in this act. And so you have lots of people walking around the city with soiled robes. And so that's what's going on here. Now, when you would participate in something like this, in the ancient world, when a man removes that part of himself, that's not just... um, well, there's lots of things that are going on here. What that is, the primary cause for this, or the not cause, the primary thought on this is this man has forfeited his potential because that part of the male anatomy is where life comes from. That's the idea. The idea is this, this part of the male anatomy, this is where life comes from. And so if a man has potential, he is able to produce life. And so when a, when a man would remove that part of himself, he is essentially saying, I am no longer able to produce life. I am no longer able to fulfill the, my, my natural born potential as a man. And so there is a sense of loss. There is a sense of you had this potential within you and now you have forfeited that potential. And so there, there's a lot of deep symbolism. And so when, when John or um, in, in the book of Revelation, when it says some of you have soiled your clothes, well, it's the same thing as like you, some of you are asleep and some of you have soiled your clothes. It's the same basic idea, which is you had potential and you wasted it. It's the idea of there was all sorts of life that you had within you and you have at one point or another decided, I am not going to use this for anything. And so the whole letter to the people in Sardis is essentially like, don't you understand? You are loaded with potential. You have so much to offer the world and you're not doing anything about it. You're, you're alive, but everybody, but, but to me, it looks like you're dead. You, you have, and so he keeps using this language of, don't you understand? You have this one life. You are alive. You have breath in your lungs. You have blood flowing through your veins. And what are you going to do about it? You have a God-given amount of potential. In fact, uh, there's another writer named Paul who, in the book of Ephesians, says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, this writer Paul says, um, For it is by the grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then in verse 10 he says, For we are God's handiwork, or some, some translations, we are God's artwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, what Paul is saying is, in your life, you are on a journey. And throughout that journey, you are going to come to points along the way where you are empowered to do something good and beautiful in the world, where you are, you are empowered to bring some sort of faith or hope or love into the world, where you are empowered to bring some part of Jesus into this reality. And so we are, we are loaded up with lots and lots of potential. In fact, look at, um, in, back in Revelation, what, what does John say? Where he doesn't say, um, I find, um, well, let's just go back. In verse, what is it? In verse 2, he says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds. He doesn't say, I found your deeds evil. He doesn't say, I have found your deeds, like, corrupt. What does he say? I found your deeds 
unfinished. In other words, you had it within you to do something great. You had life within you. You were awake. You had potential. You had all sorts of, like, all the things that you have been empowered to do, and you haven't done any of it. You haven't lived up to your God-created identity. And so, and so he's, like, the constant reminder here is, wake up. You, you have one life, and when it's over, it's over, and you don't get to do it again. You have this one bit of time where you are empowered to do something in the world, to make something beautiful, to bring some sort of life in, into the world around you. And sometimes, then all, like every day, essentially, what, what John is saying is every day there are people who just say, no, that's fine. I'm not going to participate. I am not going to bring something new or beautiful into the world. And so... Um, this is a huge wake-up call for us, right? Because there's this, uh, how many of us, we just have these, again, these rhythms, these routines, these things that we do, and, like, so much time goes by, and we're, like, kind of amazed at, like, where did that go? What happened to my life? And and I wonder if this is just sort of a reminder of, like, no, you have now. Like, now is when, because how many of us, I wonder, we have something in us, and we're, we're thinking along the lines of, like, okay, well, someday I'll work on this thing. Or some, someday I'll, I'll spend more time with my kids. Or someday we'll, I, I have like this thing in me that I want to create, but I, but I don't want to do it now because I don't have the time or I don't have the energy. How many of us, like we have something within us and we just, and it needs to like live. It needs to have life and we just don't do it. How many of us, like we think, well, someday we'll do something about it. I have a friend named Bradley Grennan who has a, uh, he has a podcast called Own Your Life. And he just very recently did an episode where he talked about how essentially the idea is someday, like the idea, like the, the words someday is going to kill you because the, it's the idea of, um, at some point out in the future, you'll begin to live your life. But the reality is your life is now like all these little beats in between all the things that we sort of like, um, we kind of glide by because we're waiting for the bigger things to happen. That's actually your life, like school lunches and carpool lines and, um, mother's day with your family. Like this isn't like, okay, well, we're waiting for the big stuff to happen. This is your life. Like you have a certain amount of minutes and this is, it includes this right now. I think that's one of the beautiful things about holidays, like Mother's Day or Father's Day, like any day where you like you are kind of put in a situation where you have to slow down and you have to interact with people at like a different kind of pace. Because what it does is it reminds you that there are people in your life and they matter. And we're going to take this period of time to just be in the room with them. And so there is something profound about about simply the celebration of Mother's Day or of any sort of holiday where you're put in a room with people who you kind of owe them time. And so, and th- this, by the way, this does not come at the expense of self-care. I-, I worry, like, whenever we talk about, like, living up to your potential and, like, doing the things that you feel like you're created to do, like, this needs to be included within, like, take a Sabbath and spend time, like, resting. Like, self-care needs to be a part of this as well. But the question is, like, okay, when you are, when you are active, when you are alive in your normal life and you are well-rested, like, what does it look like for you to do the thing that you were created to do? And, and so I think what this does is it calls into question, like, okay, what's the next step? Because for some of us, we have this, this idea of, like, okay, I have to do all of these things. Like, I have to write a book, or I have to create, like, a whole... Um, I, I, I have to have my house perfectly clean all the time, and I have to have my kids well-fed, well-dressed, like, fully, like, doing everything, like, soccer, baseball, all of it, every single day. And so we get really frustrated because... We see where we are now, and we see how unattainable that whole thing is. And so maybe the real question is, okay, well, what's the next right step? Maybe if, if you're at point one, maybe the next number isn't like a 25. Maybe if you're at point one, the next number is a two. 
And so it's not like, okay, what's all the stuff I need to do? Maybe the, the question is, what's the next thing I need to do? Is the next thing I need to do to just re- like realize that there are people in my life who deserve my undivided attention and I need to spend time with those people? I need to be fully aware of I am alive and I am with people who deserve to, for me to be with them and aware that I am fully alive. Or is it... Like maybe it's a sense of like I have all these resources and I've just like spent all my time just accumulating resources. And maybe the question is like, what do I do? Is there any way I can take what I have, like my money, my time, my abilities, my knowledge? Can I take these things and put something good into the world with that? Can I be more generous? Can I be more um, helpful to people who need help? Or is is it possible that you have the ability to help someone? So maybe the next right step is to start asking questions about who could I breathe new life into? Who could I help in some sort of way? Or for some of us, maybe it's the next step for me is I need to make a phone call and tell someone I am so sorry for something because this weight, this agony, this, uh, this lack of forgiveness, this lack of this, this feeling of guilt, is just weighing me down and I need, I need to get rid of it. So maybe the next right step is it has to do with reconciliation or making something right. And so each of us, I would imagine, for all of us in the room, I would imagine each of us has a different, like in our mind, we're, we're thinking of like, okay, I've got a couple of things that are probably the next right step for me. So the question just becomes, okay, what is it? What's the next right step? Because you're alive. You can wake, if you wake up and realize you have all this unbelievable potential within you, you have a finite amount of time, of energy, of resources, of mental power. You have a finite amount of hours in the day, but that amount of time and resources and energy, that's a gift. And so the question becomes, what are you going to do about it? Are you awake? Are you fully aware that you're alive and that's a beautiful temporary gift that you have now? And it doesn't matter how old you are because if you're alive now, then you're alive now. And that's a beautiful, good thing. So may you be awake in your own life. May you understand that you are part of a journey, that you have a God-given identity and that your job in life is to discover that and live that into the world and to breathe new faith and hope and love wherever you can. May you be fully alive in your life, and may that matter to you and to the people around you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for life. We thank you that each of us in this room has been given this beautiful gift. And for those of us who we've spent all of our time being asleep or or we're in a hurry, or we're just trying to get to the next thing, may we slow down, may we wake up, and may we realize we have so much life and we have so much potential right here and now. May we understand that everything we have, every, every person in our life, this is a gift. And may we not sleep through that gift. And uh, for those of us who we've sort of been drifting wake us up to the reality of, I have a God-given identity. I was created for something beautiful and something more. And may we wake up to that reality. May we be who you've created us to be. Help us to be fully alive while we're alive. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. There are offering boxes in the back if you want to give. Happy Mother's Day. Have a safe, wonderful day and week. And uh, grace and peace be with you.